Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. We got a jam-packed day for you, by the way. The bottom of the hour, the Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan is going to join me. And at the top of the next hour, that would be, I'm sorry, Radio Lingo, at around 10.06 or so, the uh, Secretary of Veterans Affairs is going to join me, Robert Wilkie. Um, have him on to discuss uh, the VA response to the situation. Um, I want to bring you guys up to speed on a host of things that are happening. And you just fair warning for you today, I want to be a little bit repetitive uh, during the radio program. And what I mean by that is uh, that I intend to, uh, uh, at each hour, kind of reset and review because the situation is going to change dramatically in Georgia. At noon tomorrow, the governor is issuing a shelter-in-place order for the entire state. Actually, the order comes out today. Uh, now, here's one thing you do need to know. Don't panic. You will be able to go to the grocery store. There's no reason to try to go fit in all your grocery shopping today. Uh, you're going to be okay. The governor is going to make sure of that. Uh, you will be allowed to go grocery shopping. Uh, you'll be able to take care of all of those issues. And I, I just I, I want you not to freak out about it. Um, now the other issue that I want you to be aware of is that what a shelter in place order will involve is you're not allowed to go out. You will be able to go out of your house to exercise, to walk your dog. You'll be able to go out as a family and, uh, you, you will be able to go to the grocery store, but you won't be able to go out to any restaurants, uh, no to go orders after tomorrow. I hope you learn to cook. Uh, possibly there will be home delivery. We're not sure yet. Uh, we will see from the governor's order what it is. Uh, liquor stores, we'll see if they are going to be uh, I- indispensable sources. You know, out in, in Colorado and the West Coast, the left coast, they have decided that the pot shops are essential businesses. Essentially, they would much prefer people to stay home and get stoned than uh, to be out and about. So they're letting the the potheads uh, get what they want from their dispensaries, which honestly, if I were a governor of one of those states, I'd be saying they're essential as well. Might as well let people go to the dispensary and go home and and sit on their couch all day and and be couch locked, so to speak, uh, than than to be out and about. Um, I don't know about hardware stores. We're going to find out in the governor's order when it comes out. Uh, the level of snark from some of the media outlets in the state towards the governor, I think, misrepresents uh, the situation. You know, the, the governor, for example, withstood the fire of, for example, the, the president when it came to picking Doug Collins. He resisted all of that. And I think it's a little bit disingenuous to try to claim at this time that the governor somehow or another um, was pressured by local mayors into doing what he's doing. I, I think it was more than a little disingenuous for some reporters out there to say he, he's been bullied. I don't think that's the case at all. I want to walk you through what's been happening with the governor's office. I, I see the, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is saying his excuse is disingenuous because uh, the editorial board, I should note, it, it, because uh, epidemiologists have been saying for weeks we need to shut down the whole state. But that's not true. It's not really true. The, the epidemiologist the AJC has been wanting to go to, the doom and gloom people who want to tell you everything is a disaster, they've been saying, but the governor's been listening to a disaster preparedness team. He's been listening to experts. He's been listening to the CDC. He's been listening to Dr. Toomey. And it was Dr. Toomey yesterday who took updated research from the CDC to the governor and said, now we need to close this down. 
Let me explain to you what's been going on with the governor and why he hasn't closed the whole state down. There's been a regional approach, and you will remember the last time the governor was asked, there are 159 counties in the state, and 59 of them, 50 to 59, did not actually have the virus. There are now less, maybe a dozen counties in the state that don't have the virus. In fact, uh, it's more important for me at this point, instead of giving you an audit trail of, of county by county numbers, I think, unless you guys say otherwise, I think that it's worth considering where the virus is not in the state. It is not right now in Towns County on the North Carolina line. It is not on Elbert County. It is not in uh, Tolliver, Hancock, or Glasscock. It is not in Crawford, and it is not in Marion, and it is not in Quitman counties. It is not in Eccles County. It is not in Atkinson County. It is not in Brantley County or Wayne County. It is not in Evans County, Montgomery County, or Trutland County. That's it. So 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 counties. It is not in 15 counties now. It continues to spread. The Darty County situation is just sad. 29 deaths, 490 cases. The metro Atlanta area, Fulton County has 638. Uh, DeKalb, three, uh, 357, no, 373. Gwinnett, 257. Cobb has 304. Douglas, 56. Fayette, 48. Henry, 95. Uh, Rockdale, 47. Uh, you can see that the, the situation there continues in Coweta 42 and you're around the metro area. And then you get the, the further other line areas. Forsyth is 50 and Cherokee is 85 and Bartow is 147. So you, you kind of see it is it is definitely locked into areas. And the problem here that we are experiencing as the state is that we got the governor's got to find a path forward. And his path forward had been, if we want to be fair and not starky about it, his path forward had been to let each area of the state decide for themselves what they needed based on the viral spread. Yesterday at noon, the CDC released a new report. And what the CDC said in the report yesterday is that uh, we now know that there are healthy people who do not know they have the virus and uh, are highly infectious, and they are spreading at rates we can no longer model. I've mentioned to you before the 35% mark, and the 35% mark is a, is a mark where if, you, if, you, if, the, if the rate of infection is spreading at a rate of 35%, when you cross that 35% mark, it begins to exponentially increase in its ability to spread. Georgia has maintained itself under the 35% line, at least according to the models. Now, the problem is that according to the CDC data yesterday now, we don't actually know that that's true. We don't actually know that Georgia is beneath the 35% mark anymore. The reason we don't know whether Georgia is beneath the 35% mark anymore is because we now know we can't really control for the rate of spread among super spreaders. Now, there had been speculation about this. There had been speculation, and there are a lot of people, including a lot of reporters out there, saying, well, the governor should have known, the governor should have known. People have been saying this. But there hasn't actually been any research into it. I mean, you know, just for an irony here, so there, there is now research yesterday that, that hydroxychloroquine actually may benefit people. 
And for several weeks, the media has been attacking Donald Trump for suggesting that, saying there's been a lack of research. Well, now there actually hasn't been any research into super spreaders, and now there is. And the media is attacking the governor for waiting for the research when they're attacking the president for not waiting for the research. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. The media wants this to be a complete crisis and a complete panic, and everybody's got to panic the way the media wants you to. The governor's been listening to his advisors, including Dr. Toomey at the Department of Public Health. Dr. Toomey came out on the press conference yesterday and said that we have been able to model this. According to the new CDC guidelines, the modeling that we've been based on is more likely than not now undercounting people, and we are worried about hospital capacity. Now, this is interestingly ironic, humorously ironic, because if you recall on Monday evening, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution ran a story uh, quoting their off-sited epidemiologist, Dr. Del Rio, that Georgia was turning the corner, we were going to be fine. And at that time, Fulton County was not shelter-in-place and the state was not shelter-in-place. And on Monday evening, Tuesday morning, the Atlanta Journal was telling everybody, we're, we're okay. Uh, the new modeling says we're going to be fine. In fact, the modeling showed Georgia would not exceed hospital capacity, and everyone was optimistic and happy. Well, on Wednesday, the modeling changed. The modeling changed to show for the first time Georgia would actually exceed hospital bed capacity based on the rate of spread. And then the CDC came out with new guidance saying that we actually don't think we can confidently model super spreaders, and we do believe there are areas of the country that are being impacted by them, including Georgia, specifically Darty County in South Georgia, and people who are getting infected, who are healthy, who have no symptoms of the disease, who are widely spreading the disease. So the governor did the responsible thing and decided to shut down the whole state. Now he has resisted. The last time he considered it, there were more than 50 counties unimpacted. Now there are only 15. The order will go into effect tomorrow. It will be released today. It will give people time to digest it. Uh, the things that you need to know about the order is that from what the governor said in his press conference yesterday, we will not be uh, prohibited from going to the grocery store. Essential services, you'll be able to check on uh, family members. So, for example, if you get uh, elderly family members who do not live with you, you will be able to check on them. If you need to go to the grocery store, you will be able to check on, uh, you will be able to go to the grocery store. If you need to get gas, you will be able to get gas. Uh, there will be a lot of places that will be considered essential services that I'm sure some people will mock as happens around the, the state. The other big issue is that the school year is over. That does not mean uh, that you will not still be learning. It does not mean that your kids will not still have homework. Um, there is a big debate now on whether or not there needs to be pass-fail, and I want to get into some of that as well. Um, it, it, home distance learning will still be going on for a lot of people. My kids are on spring break this week, technically, and next week they're going to be back at it doing homework, engaged with their teachers. Uh, it, there will be some level of futility. I think some people will get fed up with it, but the fact of the matter is grades will still be coming in. There is a big debate, though, on whether or not it should be pass-fail. And I've heard from a number of people who are split on this, number of teachers, I should say, who are split on this. There are some teachers who want it to be pass-fail, and there are other teachers who are actively engaged with their classes, and they want grades. 
And one side or the other is going to be deeply unhappy. And and I, my original suggestion had been, I think the rule should be let the teachers decide for themselves. Do they want to be pass fail or do they want to be graded and let the teachers decide? The problem, as a friend of mine who is a teacher pointed out, is that brings inordinate pressure on the teachers who are doing a good job of making grades and being actively engaged with their kids to suddenly cut it out because it's making the other teachers look bad. And you put them in a, a peer pressure situation, which I had not considered, and I can totally see that. Um uh, given the way some are. Now, the other news you need to know about as we start the show this morning is that there is record high unemployment claims filed. 6.6 million Americans have filed weekly unemployment claims. That news is breaking right now. Uh, it dwarfs last week's uh, 3 million claims. There are now roughly 10 million unemployed people at a country that just two weeks ago had full employment. That gives you the shape of the crisis. It has also allowed others to come out today again and say, uh, maybe the crisis isn't so bad. Maybe, just maybe, things aren't terrible. Maybe, just maybe, uh, we should reconsider things and and start reopening the country. The problem uh, with that right now is the data out there. Here, here's, here's what you need to understand. Bottom line on why we cannot immediately reopen the country. Hospitals are at capacity everywhere in the country right now. And in most parts of the country, there have been shelter-in-place orders already put in place. And we know that the delay in hospitalization will come about a week later. So in Georgia right now, we are almost maxed out on hospital capacity. And the virus is still spreading. So if you reopen the economy right now, we know that there will be a significant amount of hospitalization, and we don't have the beds, we don't have the ventilators, we don't have ICU. I do not subscribe to the theory that uh, we can continue indefinitely shutting the place down. I do not think we can get to June and July and still have the country shut down. But I think we're going to have to give it the college try until May now. The the data out there, and and for all of you who disagree with me, that's fine. And feel free to call in, uh, 877-973-7425, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Here's the point, though. You've got to contend with if you think we need to go on and open the country. Uh, we We know what the rate of spread is. The CDC now says we can't even model super spreaders. And we know that hospitalization is at capacity. So where are you, if you reopen the economy and everyone goes about their business, where are you going to put the people who need to be hospitalized? Uh, You need to be able to answer that question if you're in favor of opening up the country right now. And right now, no one who wants to open the country has that answer. Believe it or not, it looks like I may have a bit of a stable internet line this morning. It, it has really been something to to watch uh, the amount of people who are online. And, oh, well, uh, maybe I spoke too soon. I don't know. There, there are so many people online right now. It is actually very, very difficult to get a stable internet connection, uh, even to be able to do Facebook Live right now the, the way I, I it, it is set up for me to do. Um, it's just, it's, it's difficult. Uh, so you'll, if you're watching online, you got to bear with me because there are a lot of people watching and that then causes problems as well. You know, normally when I first started doing the show, we would have maybe a hundred or hundred people or so watch the Facebook live stream. And now you, you got more than, I guess the last engagement numbers I saw is, is up to uh, 2000 people watch it live and, and ultimately about 60,000 people sharing it, which makes me feel good. Um, people sharing it after it's over, but my goodness gracious, uh, it's, it's the podcasting numbers are down and, and the, the Facebook live numbers are up, which I guess is a good thing. Um, we, you know, I, you know, as a matter of fact, I was, I was literally about to make this point. 
uh, literally about to make this point, and and suddenly I see that we've got Bob and Sandy Springs calling in. Bob, I, I, I want to let you make the point. I was literally opening my mouth to say it when I turned to look at the call screening program. <laughs> <laughs> well, great minds think alike, I guess. <laughs> sure. Well, so, um, all right. Well, so, so, so your thoughts on this now? I think this country needs a, a goal or a date. It's kind of like your parents, you know, telling your children, okay, if you wait until this, you have something to look forward to. We can no longer, I believe, keep the country shut down without some sort of, okay, May 1st is our target to start, to start opening up the country. Some parts of the country may not. Otherwise, you know, we're going to get into a funk where once this is all over, what do we really have to come back to as a country? I mean, and also, too, Trump may be in a situation where, you know what, I'm going to lose reelection, which I think, you know, after hearing the job numbers today, they're going to blame him no matter what. And he may just say, screw it. I might just open up the country and hell, I'm going to lose reelection anyway. So it just, you know, <laughs> yeah. End so now. here's. I, I I was uh, about to make that point as well. I, you got to give people uh, some reason to go forward. And so, for example, uh, your, your parents during the summer that they you gather around. This is, for example, my, my buddy Chris Burns at Dynamic Money. This is his advice. You get parents in a room together and say, we're doing this budgeting. And if we can hit these numbers and save this money, we're going to take a vacation. And you you get you bring the kids into the conversation, you set your budget, you do your plan, you, you get everybody invested in doing the planning and doing the budgeting and saving the money. And then ultimately you you can you've got a metric to know, okay, we're getting close. We need everybody to hunker down. We have one more week of this. Let's everybody hunker down. And it, it gets people invested in it. And, and right now they're they're not doing for lack of a better term, and man, I really hate to even say it this way, but uh, the basics of parenting are failing on the explainers out there. Like, for example, I, I, I saw a graphic that was being relayed yesterday, and I agreed with it, that stop telling people social distancing. Up until three months ago, no one even heard knew what the phrase social distancing meant. It may have been in medical guidelines and, and epidemiological guidelines, but it wasn't used in, in common parlance by anyone. No one knows what the heck social distancing is. So instead... Tell people, stay in your house, don't leave except to take a walk and go to the grocery store and only go to the grocery store once a week. Plan ahead. The, you know, that, interestingly enough, that is one of the, the, the tough parts here is that people haven't been planning ahead. And as they haven't been planning ahead, uh, they're having a harder time sitting down and doing a basic, let, let's plan out all the meals this week. Let's, let's plan on going to the grocery store. And, and by the way, I do want to caution everyone who's hearing this. You do not need to make a run on the grocery store. You don't need to make a run on the grocery store because the grocery stores are going to be open. Uh, the supply lines have been unimpacted. So there's no reason to go do mass hoarding now um, and, and dissuade your friends as well. That is one of the downsides to what's going on right now is a number of people are out there uh, rushing to grocery stores, trying to stock up. They're depriving others of some of the essential goods and services that they need uh, when no one needs to do this. Um, when you go in and you empty out the grocery shelf full of stuff, you're, you're buying more than you actually need for the next couple of weeks, and you're also depriving other people who really need it. Now, it'll be back there tomorrow, but what's happening is you're forcing people to make multiple runs at a time we're supposed to be staying home. So don't be a hoarder, people. Don't be a hoarder. Now, when we come back, 
the lieutenant governor of the state of Georgia, Jeff Duncan, is going to join me. Uh, we got a number of things to talk about, in, including, you know, there's still this outstanding budget for the coming year uh, the state legislature is going to have to deal with, among other legislative priorities. Uh, what do we do with education? That's a concern, deeply concern, concerning to him. And uh, how else do we prioritize in times of crisis? I'm going to get back to him, I promise. We've just had bigger fish to fry of late, have we not? Uh, joining me by phone is the Lieutenant Governor of the state of Georgia, uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. Welcome, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Good morning, Eric. Now, yeah, let, let me go through the personal stuff now. Are you and your family doing well? Yeah, no, we're, we're doing fine. We're adjusting to the new normal here. You know, we've got three young kids, and so it's never a dull moment around the Duncan's house right now. But, uh, you know, we're, they're, they're doing online school and blessed to have a uh, public school system like Forsyth County that uh, uh, has an incredible online system that uh, allows those kids and those teachers to stay connected. So That's a – you know, that, that raises actually one of the questions I wanted to talk to you about because I know that this is a big issue near and dear to your heart. There are parts of the state still where if, if we're all sheltering in place – uh, given the lack of internet in some of these places, it's going to be very difficult for rural areas of the state to to catch up and and stay connected. Uh, what's your thinking on that situation? Well, certainly, look, this whole situation is bringing up all kinds of difficult times and asterisk marks um, and whatnot. You know, certainly we we've, we've got to make sure that we understand um, you know the unintended consequences that rise from this, and, and obviously education is going to be one of those. Uh, I, I'm just. Uh, blown away at all the great stories I hear about teachers continuing to stay connected to their students. Um, you know, we yesterday we we our kids all got a phone call from a, a faculty member from their schools just to call and touch base with them and hear their voice. And uh, certainly we're going to have to figure that out as we go forward. Uh, hopefully we get this thing in the rearview mirror quick enough to where those school systems that don't have the ability to, to deliver education via an online tool are able to get those kids back in the classroom and up to speed. Now, what's the state of play for the legislature? I know you guys are going to have to come back at some point to to deal with the next year's budget. And now, of course, we've got additional complications with what we can and can no longer afford. Well, two two parts of the legislature. Uh, we have a, a call for a special session on April 15th. Uh, that was a function of our last special session to come back and, and reevaluate the governor's uh, emergency powers. Uh, I can't think of a scenario where it would make sense for us to invite 235 members of the General Assembly and all of the supporting cast back into that into that building in two weeks from today. Uh, and uh, all of the understanding that we have, uh, that does not bring up any sort of issues. The governor would be able to maintain those emergency powers and continue to, to uh, push forward. Uh, as far as the broader session bringing us back, the only thing that the Constitution really requires us to do at this point between now and June 30th is to approve a fiscal year 2021 budget, which would take effect July 1. And so certainly at some point between now and then, uh, we will continue. We will have to get back together and approve a budget. Uh, I can assure you that on the Senate side, Senator Jack Hill, uh, our appropriations chair, is ongoing conversations with my team, the governor's team, and with the House Appropriations Committee, continuing to talk about moving you know, look, this is a moving target. Uh, the budget has got two two different things going on. One is obviously there's going to be a decline in revenue expectations, and the governor will set that for us at some point here in, in, in the future. And then secondly, like every household in this state and in this country, there's new pressure points showing up on every line item in the budget. 
And uh, certainly the things that we thought were important a few weeks ago may not be as important as they are going forward. Uh, but that uh, we'll have to get to that. But uh, right now, we want to make sure the health and well-being of 11 million Georgians is the tip of the spear. Now, beyond that, I, I know you've you've still got other things you want to do, and, and life goes on even when you're in your house. I, I You know, as an aside, can I just say I am busier now than I was three weeks ago in large part because so many other people are stuck in their houses, and suddenly they think, hey, Erickson works from home. He must have time for my phone call, and I can't get people to leave me alone now that they're stuck. Everybody's bored. Um, that's that's the one down. I would like to socially distance in a tent somewhere for a week without cell phone service. <laughs> You're going to get well, that way. Trust me. Um, well, but not, I know I'm life goes at, on. I'm for not you. bored at my house. <laughs> Good. I, I know life goes on and, and you've got other things you want to do, and including uh, still building out a commission to, to focus on technology in Georgia, which is frankly now deeply relevant to what's going on in the state. Yeah, so look, we're dealing with two crises right now, right? There's obviously the health crisis in COVID-19 and understanding the best ways possible to flatten the curve and put all 11 million Georgians in a position to, of, for success to get us through this. The second unintended consequence is an economic crisis, right? Obviously, unemployment, I saw the numbers come out this morning on a national basis. I mean, they're just skyrocketing. But, you know, it, it, I think we're going to be in a position when, when it's time to see this health crisis in the rearview mirror, we'll get back in the saddle here and be able to put Georgia in a position to continue the growth that we've seen coming. Uh, being the technology capital of the East Coast is going to be even more important on the backside of this crisis. Inviting the best and brightest to bring their big ideas here, bring their checkbooks here, uh, bring their talent here, and call Georgia home. And it's not just going to be an Atlanta story. This is going to continue to be a Georgia story as we look for ways to have ag tech in South Georgia and you know, fintech in Central and, 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 and the North Atlanta suburbs, cyber tech out in Augusta and all other places, logistics tech in Savannah. There's an opportunity to really put us on the map for, for a generation or more. Uh, and certainly when the right time comes, we're going to put gas back in the engine and get going here. Now, what do you think the timeline will be for putting gas back in the engine? So uh, I listened, like so many other folks yesterday, to the governor. Had, you know, look, I'm so proud of Governor Kemp through this whole process. I mean, you want to talk about somebody who's paying attention to the data, listening to the experts and to the scientists and to the medical providers, Dr. Toomey. I mean, this guy is working harder than anybody in the state, his entire team is. Uh, and he's been very close to me and really continuing to keep you know, on a daily update as to where we're headed. Uh, yesterday, he announced, obviously, that the it now the new modeling shows the peak to be around April 23rd-ish. Uh, that then, you know, because of exponential growth in statistics, that means that we're going to have more people on, on a quicker basis infected over a longer period of time, which is going to stress and strain the healthcare system a little more than what was initially anticipated. So, look, my hope is that we get to that 23rd date, we crest and start to pull back and start to feel what normal is a few weeks after that. Um, but I you know, don't have a crystal ball, um, but, you know, I cannot say enough about Governor Kemp one-on-one -on -one and also as just a citizen of Georgia, watching him navigate uh, this, this very, very difficult situation. You know, what's the state of play in the Senate? I, I know um, Brandon Beach is recovering. Bruce Thompson is recovering. Uh, what, what about the rest of the Senate? So, yeah, I, I've been able to make contact with the folks that uh, that were initially tested for COVID-19, and uh, it seems like everybody's back on, on the mend, um, and uh, I've not heard of any additional cases uh, arise. You know, look, 
we are we are staying operational like you know tons of businesses all over georgia the lg's office lieutenant governor's office we're doing virtual staff meetings we've got constituent services that are up and running uh we've got media social media legal policy and continuing to stay in contact with as many of the senators as we can uh so from a health perspective i've not heard of any additional cases uh but i can tell you that those senators are working hard in their districts um, you know, I was on a several. I was on a uh, radio show this morning, and and Jessup and, and Senator Blake Tillery's district, and and probably ten or fifteen others earlier in the week. Well, look, I I I, I could talk to you all day about a bunch of stuff, but I know you've got work to do, and and I've got a. I just I'm so focused on this virus, you know, and I want other stuff to talk about too, uh, and it just seems like it is so consuming, and the situation changes like every six hours. There's new information on this stuff, so let let me ask you that as, as kind of a concluding point of the conversation is is how what are you doing to keep up on everything? I, I mean, I realize you've got access to the governor's office and, and a staff to feed you stuff, but what do you do while, while you're home trying to to make sure you're up to speed on everything? So. Look, and this this is kind of to a broader message, and, and the governor and I have, have really dovetailed on this message out to folks all across Georgia and also to uh, elected officials, right? We've got to make sure that we're using sound information, fact-based data, professional opinions, and not just social media posts and, and Twitter feeds to make big decisions on because these affect, you know, millions of people or thousands of people or, or even, you know, corporate decisions based on your company. Uh, so really continue to just lean into Senator Ben Watson uh, is, a, is a primary care physician down in Savannah. Uh, I have stayed very close to him. I know the governor and his team has has also uh, continued to get great information from him. Dr. Toomey is an epidemiologist, which I'll be honest, I didn't even know what an epidemiologist was until all of this you know, came right. open. Um, and uh, continue to just really stay focused on the data. But Eric, here's something important for your listeners to understand, right? This is a very odd time. And nobody, nobody prepared for this. Nobody's got, you know, none of us studied pandemics, you know, in, in, in school uh, for, at a detailed level. But what this is about is, is about using actionable data. But this data is important to understand because what we're watching today at, at 12 o'clock, Department of Public Health is going to post a bunch of numbers. Those numbers were, were baked in two weeks ago. So the moves we make today, we won't see the results for two weeks. And it's hard for us as humans to, to, to be that patient with this information. But we've got to understand that that mentality of, look, social distancing is absolutely important. It's, it's individually important. It's corporately important. It's community important. We've got to take this serious. And, uh, you know, that's really been what the governor's mantra has been is, guys, proud of a million, millions of Georgians who are doing this. But guys, don't let don't let this opportunity pass uh, without us continuing to do the right thing. Well, I told you this was going to be my last question, and I apologize. I do have one thrown at me by a listener who just texted me who's listening uh, and wanted to know, uh, state of play on the election, Stacey Abrams now saying we need to do all vote by mail, including in November, uh, and wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, I've gotten a couple of questions on it. Uh, you know, our, our opinion has been this from the lieutenant governor's office is, you know, we've been focused on the health and well-being of millions of Georgians and a global pandemic, which is, you know, all hands on deck. Uh, we have gotten virtually every legal opinion we've gotten that's been given to us is that Secretary, uh, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's team, uh, he has the ability to move that election or keep it where it's at. Uh, we'll support his decision, uh, you know, where he's, where he's at on that. But at, at this point, every legal opinion has told us that he has the ability to, to keep it where it's at or move it if he needs to. He's got the staff. He's got the resources. He's got 
all the people paying attention to the laws and to the dates and to the timing. Uh, and so we're going to stay focused on the health and well-being of 11 million Georgians and go let him do his job. Sounds good to me. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, thank you very much and stay safe out there, you and your family. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Absolutely. Uh, Lieutenant Governor, By the, speaking of the election, by the way, let me pull up. I've got the, the, the legal code for you. Um, because there is a question about this and the emergency order from the governor, and it's not going to contemplate the election. Here's why. Uh, 212-50.1 in the Georgia Code. In the event the governor declares that a state of emergency or disaster exists pursuant to uh, Code Section 38351, or a federal agency declares that a state of emergency or disaster exists, the Secretary of State is authorized to postpone or extend the qualifying periods provided in this chapter for the qualification of candidates seeking municipal, county, or statewide office and to postpone the date of any primary, special primary, election, or special election in the affected area. The Secretary of State shall exercise the powers granted by this code section carefully and any such postponement of extension shall not exceed 45 days. Uh, and then there's OCGA 38351D. In addition to any other emergency powers conferred upon the governor by law, he may suspend any regulatory statute uh, prescribing the procedures for conduct, uh, conduct of state business or the orders, rules, or regulations of any state agency if strict compliance within with the statute, order, rule, or regulation would in any way prevent, hinder, or delay necessary action in coping with the emergency or disaster. Um, so th- there's, there's the deal here. The governor can suspend regulatory statutes. He cannot suspend or extend the election. That is in the purview exclusively of the Secretary of State in Georgia. He has already extended the election into May, uh, and there is pressure on him to do it again. He has said he could only move the presidential primary once, um, that uh, any such postponement or extension shall not exceed 45 days. That may be too literal of a, of a, um, uh, of a consideration. It may very well be a situation where the Secretary of State needs to push it to June and then let the courts intervene otherwise. And, you know, that's also the other thing. I, I've gotten a series of emails from people, lawyers, lawyers. They, they are all lawyers. I used to be a lawyer. I am not anymore. I'm on the 10th or 11th step of getting out of being a lawyer. And the the view from these lawyers is that the shelter-in-place orders and mandatory statewide quarantines are unconstitutional. They are an infringement on life, liberty, and the pursuit of, of uh, property or, or life, liberty, and property. Uh, I, I would disagree with that analysis um, because of public health emergency law in the past. There is not, however, we should all concede a lot of case law on it. There are regulations. There are rules. There are statutes. Uh, but I would just tell people, if you think it's unconstitutional, uh, don't send me angry emails. Uh, sue. File a lawsuit. Go to court. You can still go to court. The courts are still open. The courts are still taking uh, emergency injunctions that you may have to do it by video call, but you can still do it. But uh, God bless you. If you think it's unconstitutional for the governor to order you sheltered in place, file a lawsuit against the governor. You go to you go fight the case uh, and and see what case law you can generate out of it. But uh, there's no reason for you to to be be Mr. Mr. Cool on social media saying this is all unconstitutional when you're not actually going to do anything. Uh keyboard warriors only go so far and it's great for people to be complaining about this stuff but unless you're actually willing to stand up and say you know what by god I'm going to file the lawsuit just stop your belly aching about it please. Uh we're in uncharted territory everybody's doing the best they can.
Yeah, just uh, one point. I did not raise this with the lieutenant governor earlier, but I think it's it's worth considering the lack of hostility from reporters. Uh, and what I mean by that is if you compare the president's press briefings these days with the press briefings of the governor yesterday, who clearly did a major reversal of policy. The governor did not get the level of snark and hostility from reporters uh, that he has otherwise gotten or that the, the president has otherwise gotten. I thought that was actually fairly notable in large part because uh, there are a lot of people who have been pressuring the governor to make this decision. The governor waited until the modeling decisively shifted. There will be people who say he waited too long. Uh, in fact, you're already seeing Rachel Maddow, among others, come out on MSNBC and attack the governor for waiting too long, uh, rounding, comparing him to Ron DeSantis. The situation, of course, in Georgia and Florida are very, very different. And I, I see no reason to blast the governor for following the advice of public health officials. Uh, and I, I don't think Dr. Toomey has misled him here. It's, if you listen to the press conference yesterday with, with Brian Kemp and Dr. Toomey, Dr. Toomey said there had been no reason to to change direction despite the belly aching of some people prior to yesterday because all of the modeling that they rely on and all of the data from the CDC that they rely on to make informed decisions showed fairly consistently that there was no uh, risk of overwhelming hospitals in Georgia. As soon as the modeling shifted to show that there was a risk of overwhelming hospitals in Georgia, they decided to shut down the state. They will make it effective at noon tomorrow. Uh, if everyone does what they're supposed to do, we will not see uh, an overwhelming risk of people overwhelming the hospitals. They're still the governor has had to call out the National Guard and part of calling out the National Guard uh, involves them ferrying resources between different hospitals that need them. Uh, and by the way, can I just say, um, please, for the love of God, if you're in the National Guard and you're listening to me, please actually speed on the interstate. It is, I, 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 I swear to you people, it is the most annoying thing the first Saturday of the month. Uh, when they're training and they're going up and down the interstate, at least they're all staying in in the right lane, unlike the idiots from Florida. But they stay in the right lane and they they do the precise speed limit, if not under. And y'all just drive as fast as you want to drive. You want to get a ventilator from Atlanta to Albany, you floor it, take any regulators off, and you just go, 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 go. And 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 you will make us all quite happy. We're not going to be on the interstate anyway. We're going to be sheltered in the place. The interstate is yours. Speed as fast as you want to speed to Albany or, or wherever else you need to go to deliver resources. We will all be fine with you doing that. Uh, and I myself um, plan on hunkering down, I, I, going to the grocery store. I, I, if anything, one of the upsides of this, and, and I, I genuinely don't mean this flippantly, some people will take it as that, but it will force all of us to get back into a better planning habit, I suspect, because we're they're not really going to want us driving back and forth to the grocery store, and you don't really want to be driving back and forth to the grocery store. So at least it will get us in the habit of having to plan accordingly and drive accordingly 
and and shop accordingly. Uh, this past Saturday, I've been getting up on Saturday. I've been sleeping in, frankly. Um, but this past Saturday, I went out and I was able to get everything I needed from the grocery store. And we haven't needed a ton other than like milk. And eggs are hard to, fi- hard to find. I-, I have stockpiled eggs over the last several weeks. Um, and the expiration date is coming up on some of them. And I haven't even gotten to them yet. Um, so I need to, I need to find things to make with eggs, but nonetheless, uh, the, the point being, uh, it, it has been a little bit aggravating to go to grocery stores of late and see a bunch of people hoarding who have no business hoarding and yet they can't help themselves. Uh, they feel desperate to do that. And there's, there's just no reason folks. There's no reason for you to to be engaged in hoarding. The supply lines are fine. The supply chain is fine. Uh, the reason the grocery stores are closing early and opening late is because, one, they want to sanitize for you, but more importantly, because there are idiots out there who continue to hoard. And, you know, all the grocery store chains, and good for them, by the way, our, our local public says signs up now, you can't bring stuff back. You, you, you go out and you buy uh, 32 liter bottles of Coca-Cola and, and, and 20 cases of toilet paper. They're not letting you bring them back in a couple weeks. You're stuck now and good. Uh, you, you should have to pay the financial hit for being the idiot. Um, there are, there is no reason now I really, and listen, I don't mean to be that harsh. Then the reality is the reason people are doing what they're doing right now is they want to feel in control of some aspect of their life and planning their grocery store binges and things like that allows them in some cases to feel like they are in control, but still people, there's no reason for you to be hoarding right now. Uh, there's, there's no reason at all for you to be hoarding. When we come back, uh, the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, uh, Robert Wilkie, is going to join me. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show, all over the place now. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Joining me uh, by phone is the Secretary of Veterans Affairs for the United States, uh, Robert Wilkie. Mr. Secretary, thanks very much for being on with me this morning. Oh, Eric, thank you for having me, at least virtually getting me out of the swamp. Well, you know, so I had the Lieutenant Governor of Georgia on, on uh, in the last hour, and I was saying, I'm busier now than I was a month ago because everybody else is stuck home. And, yeah. and like, hey, you work from the house. Let me give you a call. <laughs> right. That's funny. That's funny. I, I, I'm ready to go camping. Um, yeah. So th- yeah. let me ask you, uh, what is the status with the VA as, as it comes to this disease uh, yeah. spreading? I know there's been a lot of concern about VA hospitals. Sure. Well, you know, the president was very clear to me before the rest of the country um, kicked into gear uh, that I was to be as aggressive as possible in providing a public health response to this. Um, we, we set up emergency operations centers early in February. Uh, we were the first healthcare system to uh, start actually testing people and asking them questions before they came into the center. We were the first to stop elective surgeries. And I think one of the hardest decisions, I not think, the hardest decision I had to make, we have about, on any given day, 7,800 veterans in our version of nursing homes. The majority of that 7,800 are World War II in Korea. And early on in this, we had to tell them they could not see their families. They could not see their friends at a very difficult time in their lives. Uh, that was done to protect them, and um, and that's how we approach this thing. The, the other thing that I would say is this president 
uh, has allowed me to present to the Congress in the last two years the two largest budgets in the history of the department. So he has had me scaling up um, for veterans care all over the country. But you and I share the same philosophy. Part of that uh, was um, widening the aperture for veterans in terms of choice in their health care. Um, if we didn't have a service that they needed or if they lived uh, a certain distance away, uh, we're not, we were not going to force them to pass you know, you know, a dozen doctors and healthcare systems just to get to VA. So those things were put in place by this president. Um, and the good thing, at least if you can find a silver lining in this, is that we are, we really are a military organization in the sense that we serve nine and a half million people who are used to the culture, um, who have been in some of the most godforsaken places on the planet, and they know what tough is. And the people around me um, here and the leadership are all are all veterans with with lengthy military service. I mean, I still serve in a reduced capacity as an Air Force Reserve officer, but um, I think having that kind of experience uh, in place is is key when confronting something like this. Well, okay. I, I want to ask you just as, as a random aside. You, you mentioned the Air Force Reserve. Now, do I understand right? You were first in the Navy Reserves and, and then sure. you moved into the Air Force Reserve. Right, right. Um, and it's worse than that because my father was a senior officer in the 82nd Airborne Division. <laughs> oh well, there you go. So, so I, I get it. I, I, I we're I've a Navy household here. Just so you Sorry, understand. Navy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I yeah, I, I miss the Navy. Uh, but something happened when I was working for Rumsfeld and Gates at the time, Rumsfeld first. And then when Secretary Gates came on and I, uh, I missed serving and I ended up joining the Air Force, which I love. It's, it's, it's a wonderful experience. But, yes, that, that's how that happened. That, that that's just an, and I saw in the bio I pulled up for you last night, Naval Reserves and the Air Force Reserves. Like, how do you go from the Navy to the Air Force? Yeah. My, my brother-in-law, who is retired as a Master Chief, would be horrified to learn this. But considering the job you're doing, he'll give you a pass. Yeah, well, it helps. <laughs> it does help. Um, you know, the the military, even though it is a family, there are unique cultures within each of the services. And, you know, the the notion that I, the son, grandson, great-grandson of soldiers, would have done that. Uh, but I get it from the Airborne and the Artillery Mafia. <laughs> That's uh, so. my father's side. <laughs> now, let me ask you, having come in in, in 2018 yeah. uh, as as the Secretary of the VA and, and un, uh, knowing the underlying issues, yeah. Uh, dealing with what has been your biggest before the virus even hit? What what was your biggest challenge as, as secretary of the VA? Well, changing the trajectory of the institution. It had been buffeted by bad news for well over a decade, and I found and and I think in this this instance the military experience helps. Um, there's a very clear way of doing things that we have in the military. It uh, doesn't matter which one of the services. You walk your post. And uh, I think uh, until this hit, I w I've been in 44, 45 states in the last year, um, making sure that we changed the organization, first being seen, then making this a bottom-up organization. The notion that I can sit here and I look down on the White House from my office and st send out all of these directives uh, as if it, it one size fits all. 
uh, in an organization as complex as this is absolutely ludicrous. The other thing that we we did, thanks to this president, was that we began holding people accountable in ways that the rest of the federal government doesn't. Uh, we've let go 8,000 people, but people in very senior positions. Uh, the other side of the, the aisle keeps saying that we're letting go of custodians. Well, um, you've seen what we've done just in Atlanta mm-hmm. in changing out leadership there. Um, and I think that's had a wonderful effect on morale. Um, and this is a very different organization. One, one thing I will say, when the president came in, when I came in, uh, this was either 16 out of 17 or 17 out of 17 in terms of best places in government to work. We're now number six. Um, we have the highest patient trust ratings um, that we've had in our history, almost 89%. Uh, in fact, the VFW just ran their national survey, and they were at 90% in terms of their approval, and they're the second largest veteran service organization. So it is a very different VA, and I, I give a lot of the credit to uh, the president, uh, for one, for letting me go, but two, um, he made veterans the centerpiece of his campaign, and he's, he's fulfilled that commitment uh, since he's been in office. Well, yeah, I, I, I hear that so much from people I know who are veterans that they see, that's not to say there aren't problems, uh, but they definitely see changes out there. And and now you've got this situation. Yesterday I interviewed um, Morris Miller. He's the CEO of a group called uh, Zenix and they they've developed this robot, the light strike robot. And I had read uh, that the VA has invested in these things now and are using them in in hospitals. We're on cutting edge. Um, You know, my, my most famous, predecessor, and I'm sitting at his desk, was General of the Army Omar Bradley. Mm. He ran VA right after World War II before he became the first chairman of the Joint Chiefs. His goal was that every medical student, every nursing student in the country would do residency here. Well, we do about 70% of those. Um, But we are the cutting edge of technology. We were the first organization to do a liver transplant. We were the first one to do have a cardiac pacemaker. Uh, We developed the nicotine patch. Um, We are on the cutting edge of spinal cord injuries. We just did at our Durham, North Carolina VA in conjunction with Duke University. I hate saying Duke. I'm a Wake Forest man. um, (laughs) I almost went to Duke and and I didn't, so I'll give you a pass You didn't go to Duke, so good good on you. Yes. Um, We just did a non-living donor heart transplant. Wait, 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 Uh, wait. So the the donor, how does you did a yes? Num- I don't know the science, but that's what happened. Usually wow. it is, and the point of that is that ties into what you said about our investment in robotics. Um, we're putting them in at places all over the all over the system. We have 170 hospitals and 1,200 clinics. Uh, we are cutting edge. We have one of the first 5G hospitals in the world. Uh, certainly one of the first 5G in the country at Palo Alto, where we're joined at the hip with Stanford University in their medical school. So uh, it's important, um, and um, we, are, we, are, we are a leader. But the observation that your friends have made about what's going on in Atlanta, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. You know, in an organization this big, you're always going to have hiccups. Um, but we're in a much better place, and I give so much of the credit to, uh, to the president, and I thank him for the honor of letting me sit here. 
Well, yeah, last question for you, but before I let you return to the swamp, uh, yeah, what is your projections within the VA for how this viral situation is going to play out? Well, I, I can't give you one, um, but I can tell you what is happening now, and then you may be able to paint a picture. So we have 1,900 veterans who have been, who've tested positive. Uh, we've conducted over 15,000 uh, tests at VA. So of those 1,900 about 1,400 or so are at home. They, they don't need to come into the hospital. Sadly, we've had 68 pass away, then um, we have about 500 um, in the hospital. We have very limited impact of this virus west of the Mississippi River, other than in Denver, and then some pocket, a pocket in Seattle. Um, California's fairly quiet, but Texas is quiet. Um, so you, you see that pattern. We are preparing for that thing to jump the river one of these days. Um, but right now our focus, uh, is on the hot spots. We try to project two weeks in advance. So whereas New Orleans is, let give you a number about New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans, uh, is just absolutely off the charts. There are 340 veterans who have the virus in New Orleans. Um, I mean, you compare that to Brooklyn and the Bronx and Manhattan, and their numbers don't come near to New Orleans. Um, But even with New Orleans there, and we're helping in New York City, we have to look at Detroit, Chicago, uh, Miami. You know, in in Atlanta, um, there are 64 veterans we know We've tested who have the virus. Fifty of them are at home. Sadly, two have died, but 12 are in our hospital. So we are we are working in the event that this gets bigger in North Georgia to make sure we have enough beds to take care of veterans who have the virus. So um, we look at the trends. Uh, right now, we're concentrating on the uh, the eastern half of the country, but we're also uh, ramping up in the case that it hits the west. I do want to do one thing while you quickly, I know you've got sure. got to run. Um, if a veteran doesn't feel well, and this is for a veteran, for this is a message for family, for caregivers, don't don't come to don't come to our hospital. Um, don't go to the clinics. Call us. Call us. Tell us how you're feeling. Tell us what's bothering you. We will point you in the right direction. So for the combat vets in North Georgia, call the Atlanta Vet Center. Everybody else, call your clinic. Call the hospital. We will put you in in, uh, touch with the right people. The other thing I would ask, and there are two. One, go to va.gov. Click on that banner. It gives you a lot of information. If you don't have access to that computer, 1-800-273-8255. It's 800-273-8255. That is our Veterans Crisis Line. Um, On a a normal day, we have about 1,700 calls uh, across the country. We act physically on a normal day in about 200 of those calls. Uh, We've seen a a ramp up of about 12 to 15 percent. So call that 12 to 15 percent since this kicked off. Call that. Uh, we'll talk with you, and that's open to family and caregivers as well. 
Fantastic. 800-273-8255, the VA yes, crisis sir. line. Mr. Secretary, listen, uh, thank you very much. And, and thank you very much for, for not doing Duke. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, oh, I, I'm actually yeah. in seminary up in, in Wake Forest right now at Southeastern Baptist. And, oh, good and for you. I, I got to say, I, I actually think Wake Forest is a beautiful place. Isn't, so. it a, isn't that a beautiful place? And then the school moved mm-hmm. to Winston-Salem. But you are walking on ground that was trod by the legendary Arnold Palmer. Yes. That's where he went to school. And to tell you how how bad our football program has been throughout the years, our football dorm is named after Arnold Palmer, which ought to, <laughs> which ought to tell you something right well, there. Well, you know, that gives me an excuse to work on my golf game, honestly. I, I socially isolate my backyard with a with some beer and golf balls. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Mr. Secretary, thank you very much. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, sir. You take care. Absolutely. That's Robert Wilkie. He's the Secretary of the Veterans Administration for the United States, and we will be back. Well, the, the, the national political press has turned on Brian Kemp. Uh, he, he did what they wanted him to do, and he, by the way, he listened to the experts. He waited until... Uh, his chief of public health, Dr. Toomey said shelter in place and he ordered it when his expert did. And what, what we've been told the entire time is listen to the experts, listen to the experts, let the experts decide. So the, the governor has been listening to his experts. The experts have told him shelter in place wasn't necessary. Uh, they changed their mind. So he changed his mind and now he's going to get attacked. For changing his mind, uh, I, you, you do see how this works, don't you? You you get new data; it changes your position uh, from what the the panicked people have been telling you to do, and the panicked people now attack you for not doing what they wanted you to do sooner. I mean, lest everyone forget, the Atlanta Journal Constitution on Monday night into Tuesday was running a story that uh, we were we had turned the corner, we were going to be fine, we would have a, a peak on April 23rd with 84 people dying. Uh, and this, as opposed to the nightmare scenario of two weeks ago where they were saying uh, 27,000 people would die, and, and now suddenly on Wednesday, the new data comes in, it turns out that the models had shifted and the governor shuts down the state. And now they're attacking him for not doing sooner what the experts he was listening to were telling him he didn't need to do. I just, this is, it's, it's bizarre to me, frankly, it it really is bizarre. The media goes out and they get their own people to tell them things. Those aren't the people that the governor is listening to. Uh, The governor is actually listening to a world renowned epidemiologist who worked for the CDC in Africa. Her name is Dr. Kathleen Toomey. And she said yesterday at the governor's press conference that they hadn't shut down the whole state until yesterday because the data was not there to support uh, shelter in place as a necessary policy. You know, you you do have to balance um, the virus and the economy. And he has tried to walk a, a fine line between the two and has now decided he needed to change course and shut the place down. I'm just, I, I'm, I'm flabbergasted at the people who suddenly he's, he's doing what they've wanted and now they're attacking him for doing what he wanted. I, I, I'm gen, genuinely perturbed by that because I, I know the way people react. Uh, there will be a lot of people out there 
who decide uh, there will be other politicians in states that have not yet done it, and they'll decide why. I'm going to pay a price anyway, so why wreck my economy now? I might as well just double down on what I was going to do even as the data changes. Um, we, we hear all the time from people that new evidence should allow you to change your mind. And you can say nationally, and by the way, uh, so much of the data uh, has been focused on New York City and Georgia's not New York. It, it, it does, it's not really accurate to say focus on the national data when so much of the national data is skewed to New York and Washington, or not, I shouldn't say Washington, New York and New Jersey and Brooklyn. The governor of Georgia has been focused on the data in Georgia, and I want to get into that data when we come back. I'll, I will do a, uh, a county-by-county county audit for you on where the virus has spread. Uh, there is also other stuff out there, and let me tell you this. Um, na- uh, dozen California Planned Parenthood abortion uh, clinics have closed now during COVID-19, so if there's a silver lining from the virus, it'll probably actually save more lives than it will take because it's shut down Planned Parenthood. You know, the other thing I'm noticing is how this crisis is not making people change their minds. It's just making them affirm that everything they ever thought was always the right. No one's actually changing their minds. And in fact, when they do change their mind, they're being attacked for changing their mind. It really is. Um, when you face a crisis and you see all the data coming in and you're not willing to change your mind, uh, that whatever you decided before you saw the data is exactly the case, the odds are you're being dogmatic and not actually leading. You're, you're, you're doubling down. You've seen the president of the United States change his mind on wanting to open the country from Eastern. What did the media do? They attacked him for daring to suggest Easter might be a date, and then they attacked him for changing his mind because they said he's misleading people. The media is creating a situation where no leader in this country can win no matter what they do given the situation in their local community. And we need leaders in this country to be guided by the situations in their local communities as opposed to what a national press corps demands of them that don't actually live in those local communities. That's a real problem. Now, what about education? Let's talk about it when we come back here on the program. I will take your phone calls. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. There is news. There is news. Uh, the, The Speaker of the House in Georgia is being accused of saying the quiet part out loud. Hey, and this this comes from um, Brian Kemp now. I'm sorry, not Brian Kemp. I'm seeing the picture of Brian Kemp, but Greg Bluestein at the AJC. Um, The election, the primary is moving forward despite pressure from all 11 of the Republican members of Congress who signed a letter Tuesday urging Brad Raffensperger to change the primary date. Kemp and Raffensperger said Georgia election law prevents them from postponing the primary. Kemp said he cannot use emergency powers that last until April 13th to move the election. The attorneys I've spoken to uh, said I don't have the authority. I know there's been a lot of talk about it. We got our hands full fighting COVID-19. Raffensperger says he lacks the authority to change it. A state law allows the Secretary of State to postpone an election for 45 days during an emergency. 
The election could still be postponed at a later date, Raffensperger said, if and when the governor extends the state of emergency, we can reevaluate the situation and determine if moving the election is appropriate in light of the circumstances. The Democratic Party has opposed stalling the election, saying the government should make it easier for people to vote by mail by paying for the postage for absentee ballots. Now, here's part of the problem. Um... Listen to this. Uh, David Ralston said Wednesday that widespread use of absentee by mail voting in the primary would hurt Republican candidates. All 6.9 million active voters in Georgia are being mailed absentee ballot request forms this week. Voters who return the absentee ballot request forms will be able to participate. According to the speaker, this will be extremely devastating to Republicans and conservatives in Georgia. Every registered voter is going to get one of these. That will certainly drive turnout. Now, Ralston says he doesn't want the mail-in primary to set a precedent for future elections in which heavier use of mail-in ballots drive higher turnout in the election. Uh, Stacey Abrams has actually spoken on this. Let me play you the, the, what Abrams said. Should we vote by mail in November? Absolutely. Vote by mail is the safest way to vote. And right now, almost, I would say every state has the capacity for vote by mail. The challenge is that in a lot of states, you have to have an excuse. In fact, Governor Kay Ivey of Alabama today or yesterday said that she wasn't in favor of removing the excuse. The reality is everyone has an excuse. COVID-19. We need to be certain that even if things have, have tampered down by or tapered down by then, we have to be prepared for it not to be so. And that means we have to start planning now for a November election. We need vote by mail. It needs to be postage paid. There need to be safeguards to ensure that people do not have to provide unnecessary information. And we have to make certain that for those who need to vote in person, that they still have the opportunity. The disabled community, people with language barriers, people without addresses, they need to be able to go into a polling place and cast their ballots in accordance with CDC guidelines. But vote by mail should be available to every eligible American. And we have limited in-person early voting. Uh, listen, I, I, I think you should be concerned when when people want to do vote by mail. And this is Phyllis, this actually doesn't have anything to do with stealing the vote. And for a lot of Republicans, it does for a lot of for there are people, for example, David Ralston saying it will just drive up turnout and that will help hurt Republicans uh, if we establish this precedent. I've actually got a philosophical issue with voting in person. I think there is something civic. I'm actually in favor of of making uh, the the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November during election years a holiday so that everyone can go vote. I think that there is a civic interest in reducing early voting and reducing absentee balloting and make us all go to election day together and vote. I think uh, it is something that we as a society should do. Uh, I I don't like vote by by mail, but we are in a crisis right now and we do have to change things in a crisis. My concern is this, um, the the speaker of the house saying that voting by pri- voting by mail in the primary will hurt republicans and conservatives how does voting by mail in a primary hurt republicans because democrats will get a ballot and only be able to vote for democrats republicans will get a ballot and only be able to vote for republicans how does that hurt anyone uh, i i i suspect it may hurt someone like trey kelly 
Trey Kelly, uh, you will recall, Trey Kelly is the um, Republican over in the Cedartown area and in the Rome area who is one of the, the ranking members in House leadership. He is a supporter of the speakers, and he is being tied to a death in that area where a, a man called him uh, who had hit someone. That person was left to die in the ditch. Trey Kelly and this man did. Uh, did not do a search, and by all accounts, I mean it was the coroner over there who let slip the to the press that this had happened. Uh, they they there are all sorts of questions about what Trey Kelly did or did not know, and people in the community are pretty outraged about it, and people are still fired up about it. And you you let people vote by mail, well then the speaker is down one ally in the state house because so many people are fired up about that situation. Uh, To the extent he's saying it'll hurt Republicans, you may have a bunch of Democrats crossing over in the primary uh, to vote against Trey Kelly uh, with an opponent, and the opponent is more conservative than Trey Kelly. Uh, You've also got the situation in the state Senate now in the Alpharetta area, where Michael Caldwell, who is in the state house and an opponent of the speaker, is running for the state Senate. The speaker would like to end Michael Caldwell's political viability. And so the speaker is supporting Brandon Beach, who is, by the way, a very nice guy. Uh, But Brandon Beach is opposed to uh, the special needs education scholarships. And he just recently voted against those in the state legislature. Michael Caldwell is a big supporter of them. The speaker is an opponent of them. Uh, and he would very much like for there not to be vote by mail in that race as well, because there are so many people in that area upset with Brandon Beach opposing the uh, special ed scholarships that, that they will vote for Michael Caldwell. I, I don't understand how you can say that Republicans will be hurt by voting by mail in a primary when what actually will happen is that you're going to have Democrats voting in Democratic primaries and Republicans voting in Republican primaries. That doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, but there you go. That That's that's what's going on. In, in, in the spirit of never letting a crisis go to waste, I understand there are people like Stacey Abrams and others who will I'm want to sure. expand, hush up Siri, will want to expand voting by mail to everyone. But I, I just, I, I'm, I'm perplexed by that. Now, uh, that that is happening right now. That story just hit the wires. I want to I want to I, I get into the education situation though. Um, those of you who haven't been to law school, and that is most of you, and consider yourselves fortunate. You know, I haven't practiced law since two thousand six, and I still got student loans to pay off. Uh, I, I've got thirteen more years on my student loans. You know, one of the things, and I don't think they've changed this rule. But when I was in law school, you were not allowed to work your first year of law school. Uh, the, the American Bar Association guidelines and whatnot, uh, you, you couldn't work during, you had to wait until the summer after your first year in law school. And I, I get it because law school is different uh, from other things. Law school and medical school are both very, very different from other uh, forms of education. And with law school, it is very much your first year of law school is retraining your thinking and research processes, much more so than anything else. You, you learn the common law, the judge-made law over over uh, hundreds of years, how it was developed and refined. You learn that. Uh, you, you learn it with property. You learn it with contract law. You learn it with tort law. That's personal injury, so to speak, uh, um, non-crime uh, civic injuries. Uh, you learn it with criminal law, how, how the law developed over time. You have to relearn how to think. In many cases, you have to relearn how to do research. It's very different from what you learn in college, and they don't want you to work that first year. 
And so if you don't have rich mommy and daddy, then you got to take student loans out for your cost of living for that first year so to pay your rent, pay your food, pay your gas uh, while you're also going to school. And I, I had to do that. I did not have wealthy parents and uh, needed to, to take out student loans that I will be paying off mine for a while. Um, but one of the things that happens in law school is that everybody's graded on a curve. If you have three people who make hundreds, who make straight A's, you're going to have to have three people who fail. Um, and a lot of times law school professors will cluster things up to go between a B and a D uh, and no A's in classes. Or, or if they have an A, it'll be a, a very borderline fail situation that uh, everybody's got to be on a curve. And if everyone does extremely well in a class, uh, the problem is that no one does extremely well in a class. I, I've never quite fully understood how the curve worked to me. It always seemed deeply unfair to me to force curves on people, but that, that is the way that it works in a law school. That is the way that it works in, in every law school. The problem is now all the law schools are shut down. So there are a number of law schools around the country that are going to pass fail mode. Uh, you will either pass or you will fail and they're, they're ditching the curves. And they're ditching the curves because it is not, you have one grade in a law school class typically. Some professors will do midterms and finals, but most classes in law school only do finals. So essentially, you go an entire semester in law school learning, and then you take a final exam. And that final exam is your only grade in the class. And it is not fair because you cannot monitor the honesty or lack thereof of your fellow law school students, some of whom uh, may be at home taking their final and in taking their final uh, are using open book when you're not supposed to be open book. It makes it harder on everyone. And a number of law schools have gone just to, to say they will give you the final. You can do open book, uh, but it's going to be pass fail as a result. And the University of Georgia has not yet done that. I, I And I think Georgia State Law School as well has not gone to pass-fail. They still want to grade on the curb, and there are a lot of students who are very upset about it. A, a, concurrently, I have heard from a number of teachers at the elementary and secondary level who are upset uh, by the state school superintendent wanting the school districts in the state to move to pass-fail because they are regularly engaged with their students, and they're actually giving their students homework. And, and essentially, the message that's coming forward uh, after the governor shut down schools for the rest of the year, the message that seems to be coming forward is that uh, there's just no point. And this all goes back to the call I had earlier on, we need some date certains. And I think those dates need to be subject to change, obviously. You, you don't want to be locked in. But there needs to be some date certain. So, for example, uh, tell everyone that if we all do what we're supposed to do, if everybody stays home for the next month on May 1st, everybody can come out and life can go on as normal. And put in the caveats, this is subject to change. We're trying to contain the virus. Uh, we may have to op open it regional, regional by regional. We'll, we'll assess each week, but give people hope. Right now, there seems to be intentional efforts to deprive people of the hope that life might resume. And I, I got to tell you, um, I, I think if you do that for too long, 
you're going to have a problem with people not being engaged and not only not being engaged, but not being willing to do what the government needs them to do right now. It is, listen, the fact that Brian Kemp had refused to shut down the state of Georgia and is now uh, based on expert advice saying we got to shut the place down, you should pay attention to the fact that he a holdout on the idea of shutting down the state and, and getting rid of shelter in place, uh, now making you do shelter in place, the, the circumstances have to have changed. And I would suggest to you, you need to take him seriously on this. But people need hope. People need to have hope. People need to be able to, to understand that life is going to go on. People do need to understand that we will return to normalcy. And people do need to see that this is not going to become a new normal. And if you can give them that hope and say, here's what we think is going to happen. We need you all to stay home until March 1st. Go to the grocery store as need be, but please otherwise stay home. Stay on your property. Do not leave your property. Then I think people, they're not going to like it, but they'll be more reasonable in doing it because they know that there's a date certain by which life will go back to normal. And you can come out the week before and say, listen, there are parts of the state that haven't done enough, and those parts of the state needs to stay closed for two more weeks. The rest of you go on about your business, but you have to avoid these parts of the state. And I think people would do that. I think people would embrace that. I think people would like that. I think people would understand that that there is a date certain by which life can go on and, and life can be normal again. But if you just tell people you got a shelter in place and and this is just going to keep coming on, I think that is is all sorts of problematic. Um, the governor wants us to shelter in place for two weeks. His order will be out shortly. We will see just the extent of what he means by sheltering in place. But my understanding is you will be able to go to the bank and the grocery store and the drugstore. You will be able to get gas in your car. But Restaurants are going to have to close completely for the next couple of weeks. You're going to have to learn how to cook at home. Go buy yourself some frozen meals if you need them. Uh, and and you're just going to have to stay home. Will you be able to get out and exercise individually or as a family? Yes. You'll be able to get out individually and as a family. But you will not be allowed to just get out and go places. And the fact that the governor has resisted this and changed his mind uh, should express to you the seriousness of the situation. And instead of peddling the conspiracy theories uh, that this really is no big deal, you should consider the situation around the state that so many people in the medical community are dealing with, where it turns out this actually is a really big deal, and we do need to take action. Oh, good grief. Uh, the the New York City Council Speaker, Corey Johnson, has released a statement Franklin Graham has a long history of spewing anti-LGBTQ hate speech, and I find it extremely troubling that he and his organization are involved in our relief efforts in any way. New York City is known around the world for our embrace of diversity, and Franklin Graham has spent his career standing against these values. I will be monitoring this situation closely and making sure that our city's values are being represented at all times. Oh, my. This is Samaritan's Purse 
is the charity run by Franklin Graham. It is a Christian charity that maintains biblical orthodoxy. And gay rights activists in New York City would rather die than have Franklin Graham and Samaritan's Purse helping them. Uh, this is just, this is back to a pagan world, no less. Uh, we, we are we are absolutely back to a pagan world. Um, the Franklin Graham's charity is building these hospitals. They, by the way, uh, Samaritan's Purse goes around the world doing this stuff. If you remember the Ebola situation in Africa, uh, several of the doctor, American doctors who got infected and had to be uh, repatriated by the CDC were Samaritan's Purse uh, Christian volunteers over there helping. And to be upset that Samaritan's Purse is building field hospitals in New York City at a time that New York City hospitals are being overwhelmed and, and over capacity is just crazy. Um, I, 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 it just, just, man, um, there are some deeply bitter and upset people out there. Uh, and uh, wow. Um, in any event, uh, they're still going to do it. And, and I may spend a little more time on the subject when we come back. Um, now, uh, there's other stuff out there, and I want to play you a soundbite uh, and, and prepare you for this. We do need to talk about this. This is uh, Dr. Burks. And then finally, we've reached out to the developers of the rapid test, the ones who developed it for malaria, the ones that developed them for HIV. It's exactly the same concept and process to ask them to rapidly develop these tests because I think we owe it to the frontline healthcare providers, not only to provide them RNA tests, but many of them have been on the front line now for four weeks, may have become exposed. We now know they're asymptomatic. And I think really being able to tell them the peace of mind that would come from knowing you already were infected, you have antibody, you're safe from reinfection 99.9% .9 of the time. And so this, I think, would be very reassuring to our frontline healthcare workers. And our universities can do that by Friday. So I'm putting that challenge out to them to really work on that and do that. That's what we did in the early days. We had ELISA's up and running within days of having the antigen. And so this is what's really possible. So we're not waiting. We're asking for help now. You know, one of the things that, that continues to get downplayed and underappreciated out there is American ingenuity and innovation. And there, is, there should be a level of pride in this that I don't know that there is anymore, that there's so much uh, antagonism within the United States about the United States from people who think we need to be like other places. And yet it is American ingenuity, for example. Yesterday I interviewed Morris Miller of, of uh, Xenix that has made the light strike robot in hospitals. And they have this, this uh, pulsing light ray, essentially, a light bulb that within five minutes can sterilize the hospital room. And that's an American company that did this. The old standard of mercury bulbs weren't very efficient, took much longer, and, and were also uh, more and it, less environmentally friendly. Here comes an American company that's made a robot that you can steer into a hospital room and it moves itself around like a Roomba, if you know what that is, and sterilizes a hospital room. That American innovation is something we should be praising. And I don't think enough people get enough credit for the innovation. And now as this crisis is spread, you got a bunch of American inventors stepping up to lead the way to find us a way out of it. And they should all be encouraged. And it's amazing to see the bureaucracy standing in the way of so many of them. Uh, they need to be applauded and challenged along the way.
Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia and beyond. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I want to tell you this hour of the program is brought to you now by my friend. I mentioned them yesterday and then they called out and said, hey, hey, uh, let's get back to sponsoring the show. Uh, Raise awareness on this. First Liberty uh, over Noonan. Uh, if, if you are a small business and you need access to capital, but more particularly, if you need help with the Paycheck Protection Program, that is part of the stimulus plan where the government will, through a lending institution, loan you money to meet your payroll expenses. And if you maintain your payroll, they'll convert it into a grant. So it's a, it's a loan. If you reduce your staffing, you have to pay it back. If you maintain your staffing levels, it becomes a grant, but there is a limited pool of money. So the sooner you get your applications in, the better. And if you're looking for a place to help you, First Liberty Building and Loan, firstlibertyga.com is where you need to go. That is the Frost family. They're active in in conservative politics here in Georgia. Good Christian family. I have known them for years. They are wonderful people. And I want you to engage with them if you are a small business and you need access, if you need help, uh, if you're struggling to meet payroll for the next couple of months because of the virus. Uh, there is some paperwork you got to fill out. They can answer your questions if nothing else. Uh, but what you need to do is go to firstlibertyga.com. Uh, we, you can get the phone number, all the contact information there. Tell them I sent you. Or if you text the word data to 33777, I'm going to send you back a link. And at the top of that link, uh, it has their phone number and website as well. Text data to 33777. Uh, you'll, you'll get their information. You'll also see all the information related to the spread of the virus in the state of Georgia and the nation and the world and the projection models and all that stuff by texting data to 33777. But in, in all seriousness, I, I do know the Frost family. I have known them for years. They are good people and they can help you uh, get these payroll protection loans from the federal government uh, if you go to firstlibertyga.com. Be sure to tell them that I sent you, uh, and they will treat you right. Uh, and again, this I, I would told people this yesterday, and it wasn't even an ad yesterday. It was just, I know them, they're good, go see them. And then they called me yesterday, and, and they knew I had mentioned them because several people had called them. And they said, well, let's turn this into an ad. Uh, and and start sponsoring the program now. So this hour is sponsored by First Liberty of Georgia now, and thank you to them for their sponsorship. And also, they actually can help you uh, if if you need the help. Um, and you should text data to three three seven 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 anyway. I want to give you the audit trail now. I, I have not in the first couple of hours. I I, I kind of has decided it's not. There are only fifteen counties left in Georgia without it. But a lot of people do want to know the trend lines, and I and I want you to be able to access the IHME model. The IHME model is the model that the president and the governor are both relying on for decisions. And the IHME model, uh, you can access it if you text data to 33777. You'll see a heading that says projections, and you click on it, and it gives you the projections for the country and the state. But here's the audit trail of of how the virus is spread. Again, there are only 15 counties left that don't have it. There are 4,748 cases in the state. There are 1,013 hospitalizations, uh, 154 deaths. There are 29 deaths in Doherty County. There are 20 deaths in Fulton County. There are 15 deaths in Cobb County. 
Every other county is in single digits for deaths, but here's how the virus is spreading. 638 in Fulton County, 490 in Doherty County, 373 in DeKalb County, 304 in Cobb County, 257 in Gwinnett County, 147 in Bartow County, 133 in Carroll County, 128 in Clayton County, 95 in Henry County, 94 in Lee County, 85 in Cherokee County, 71 in Hall County, 70 in Floyd, 56 in Douglas, 54 in Clark, 50 in Forsyth, 48 Fayette, 47 Rockdale, 46 Terrell, 44 Houston, 42 Coweta, 41 Richmond, 39 Chatham, 39 Mitchell, 38 Sumter, 34 Early, 34 Newton, 33 Paulding, 28 Tiff, 28 Worth, 24 Columbia, 24 Lowndes, 23 Bibb, 22 Muskogee, 21 Colquitt, 20 Barrow, 19 Crisp, Glen, and Troop, 18 in Gordon, 17 in Oconee and Spalding, 16 in Polk, 14 in Lawrence, Thomas, Whitfield, Walton, and Ware. Uh, Ware has 12, sorry. Uh, 13 in Walton, Whitfield, Thomas, and Lawrence. 11 in Dawson, 10 in Calhoun, Dooley, and Jackson. 9 in Bryan and Coffee, 8 in Burke, Butts, Decatur, and Green, 7 in Baldwin, Liberty, Lumpkin, Merriweather, Peach, Pickens, and Pierce, 6 in Bacon, Fanning, Harrelson, Monroe, Upson, Camden, Clay, Effingham, I'm sorry, Camden, Clay, Effingham, Franklin, Irwin, Murray, Seminole, Stevens, and Turner all have 5. In these counties, you've got 4. Baker, Catoosa, Jones, Lamar, Lincoln, Miller, Pulaski, Randolph, Sly, Warren, and Washington. You've got three in Ben Hill, Chattooga, Dodge, Harris, Hart, Macon, Madison, McDuffie, Toombs, and White. You've got two in Barry and Brooks, Bullock, Chattahoochee, Grady, Habersham, Hurd, Jasper, Jefferson, Morgan, Pike, Rabin, Screvin, Tattnall, Taylor, Twiggs, Walker, and Wilkes. And one in Appling, Bleckley, Candler, Charlton, Clinch, Cook, Dade, Emmanuel, Gilmer, Jenkins, Johnson, Lanier, Long, McIntosh, Oglethorpe, Putnam, Stewart, Talbot, Union, Webster, Wheeler, Wilcox, and Wilkinson. There are 485 additional cases, by the way, that we don't know with their county of residence. Uh, now, if you're just tuning in, let me bring you up to speed. I told everybody in the first two hours, this would be a somewhat repetitive show today because I want to make sure everyone is on the same page as they tune in and out. And that is that there is going to be a shelter-in-place order for the state of Georgia. The governor is under attack today in, in large part for ordering shelter-in-place, but also what he said about asymptomatic people spreading the virus, uh, which everyone knew and the media is, is misrepresenting what the governor said yesterday. Uh, the CDC uh, on Wednesday morning changed guidance for states. The reason the governor had not issued shelter in place prior to yesterday, and, and the order won't be effective until noon tomorrow, the reason he did it is uh, the reason he didn't do it is because the modeling showed that Georgia was staying under 35%. Uh, cases and and 35% transmission rate. And the reason that that is important is because all of the data globally has shown that when the virus begins to spread at a rate exceeding 35% on a daily basis, it begins to spread exponentially higher and you can't prepare your hospital uh, for max out. Georgia has stayed under 35%. The CDC yesterday Uh, released data that asymptomatic people are actually spreading it at a higher rate than previously thought. Everyone has always known asymptomatic people were spreading the virus, and this is where the media is getting it wrong. Brian Kemp knew before yesterday that asymptomatic people spread the virus. Everyone knew that. 
But yesterday, the CDC changed their modeling for how many people an asymptomatic person can infect and essentially said, we don't know anymore. The modeling has been wrong on this point. That then led the governor's epidemiological expert and head of public health, Dr. Kathleen Toomey, to tell the governor, because we can no longer accurately model this, we need to take drastic action and issue shelter in place. That's why the governor hadn't done it. He got new information, and in the new information, they decided to change and issue shelter in place. The fact that the media is attacking the governor for doing this, I think, is bad form on their part and is going to convey a sense of partisanship in this that will leave a number of people out there with the impression that it really isn't a big deal, and it actually is a big deal. And he should be applauded for doing that. What this means is that school systems cannot meet in their buildings again for the rest of the school year. Which you know, So I'm in Bibb County, and a number of, of school employees in the Bibb County school system have gotten COVID-19. They've now tested positive for it. And same in Houston County. I just read one, one in Houston County. So you don't want the kids in schools anyway. The problem is what do you do? Because uh, there are parts of the state where there's bad internet. And you, so you can't do distance learning in those parts of the state. How do you do that? And a lot of school systems are essentially going to have a lost school year. Now, meanwhile, my kids are on spring break this week. But next week, they're going to be back in class and they're going to be doing it remotely. And it is... Um, it bothers my children that uh, their friends who are not at their school are essentially having um, easy pass and they are having to do their math and science and everything else uh, during Zoom conference calls with their teachers. Uh, they, they are not happy about it at all. But this is the state of play in the 21st century. I did see a, uh, <laughs> a friend of mine on Instagram put up a picture earlier and... Uh, it said, Philip, you're not going to want to hear this. Uh, Philip needs to close his ears, uh, and, and Charlie probably needs to close his ears on this one as well, uh, although he'll appreciate it. And it said that it was just a sign. It said, people always say kids are great. No one discussed a pandemic. <laughs> yes, thankfully, I've got easy kids uh, who who – um, my 11 year old is desperate to play risk with me and, and we're going to have to make that happen as soon as we can. And I'll probably be spending my weekend playing risk, but nonetheless, um, kids are awesome. This is just, this is a, a weird time, a very weird time. You should also know that as, as the governor is under fire, Dr. Burks is yet again under fire from the American media for this statement. Um, when you talk about, could we have known something different? You know, I think all of us, I mean, I was overseas when this happened in Africa. And I think when you looked at the China data originally and you said, oh, well, there's 80 million people or 20 million people in Wuhan and 80 million people in Hubei, and they come up with a number of 50,000, you start thinking of this more like SARS than you do this kind of global pandemic. I mean, I'll just be frank, that when I looked at it, I was like, oh, well, this is not, you know, if as close as those quarters are, you know. So I think the medical community made, interpreted the Chinese data as that this was serious, but smaller than anyone expected, because I think probably we were missing um, significant amount of the data now that when we see what happened to Italy and we see what happened to Spain. And so what was modeled is not a lockdown. Um, two countries did remove people from homes that were positive 
and put them in separate spaces. Um, that also wasn't modeled, but it could be modeled. And so we could go back and ask the modelers about lockdown versus not lockdown. But what they modeled was people staying at home. There you go. Uh, and one more from the vice president. Question, Mr. Vice President, didn't the United States as a whole get off to a late start? Well, the, the, the reality is that uh, we could have been better off if China had been more forthcoming. I mean, the, the reality is that China's been more transparent uh, with regard to the coronavirus than certainly they were for, for other infectious diseases over the last 15 years. But uh, what, what appears evident now is that uh, uh, long before the world learned in December that, that China was dealing with this, maybe as, mon- as much as a month earlier than that, that it, the outbreak was real in China. The media, of course, has been defending China of late uh, because what they perceive is that this is allowing the Trump administration to avoid responsibility. And the media is desperate to give and blame responsibility uh, to the Trump administration, to to blame the Trump administration for not acting sooner. And, and, you know, uh, just objectively from my vantage point, yeah, I do think that there are things that this uh, country could have done quicker and sooner. Uh, But also, I do think it's worth remembering that when the president did act in January, the media accused him of trying to distract from impeachment. Uh, Again, so much of the reason we are here right now is because the American media has been very desperate uh, to do catch-22s on politicians. Look at the situation with Brian Kemp here in Georgia. Look at the situation with the president. Look at some of these other uh, politicians that they they didn't do what the media wanted, so the media attacked them. They did what the media wanted. The media attacked them. Uh, they, they acted soon. The media says they were doing too much. Then they didn't do what the media wanted, so suddenly they're not doing enough. Uh, you can't win with these people. There's no reason to take them seriously at this point on what they want, and that's part of the problem. We need a free and fair and honest media in this country to try to get us through this. we got a bunch of people embracing conspiracy theories. In the last 48 hours, the number of people who have reached out to me uh, about the Q conspiracy theory stuff, if you don't know what I'm talking about, please don't go looking for it. It is a bunch of insanity. Uh, by a bunch of people who would rather blame malevolence than incompetence for what's happening in the country. Um, All you need to understand to know about how this country operates is to understand that within the bureaucracy, uh, a bureaucracies operate as if their enemies are in charge. It is never attribute to malice in government what can be attributed to incompetence. And yet there are a bunch of people attributing malice and other things to how the government is working right now and are just absolutely convinced by this conspiracy stuff. It reminds me of the people, you know, Jonathan Edwards, he was the the, the ghost guy. You, you go in and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm talking to your great grandma and and – Oh, you know, she she she's from the 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 late 1940s, and she used to wear this ring. Well, every woman in the the age wore that sort of stuff. And he, he throws out this generic nonsense. People are like, oh, he's really talking to grandma in heaven. Uh, you notice he never talks to anyone in hell. <laughs> I'm 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 channeling. Oh my gosh, it's hot! It's hot! Oh, I can't I can't keep talking to him. He's screaming. Nope, nope, that never happens. It's always. Oh, she's up there floating on the cloud with curlers in her hair. She's looking down on you. Of course, that's the way it is because it's a con. And, and the Q stuff is very much the same way. You throw out some very general stuff. You say, oh, something big is coming. Something big is coming. And then something happens. And you're like, see, I told you so. 
It's just it's a it's a bunch of people pulling your leg and 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 it's the gullible people falling for it inevitably. It's you always know the type who's going to fall for it. Uh, please don't fall for it. Uh, we will be back. I, I will stop insulting because I know some of you are actually falling for it because I'm getting the emails from you. I don't believe it. And, and I'm, I'm having a, a hard time taking you seriously when you tell me how seriously you take that nonsense. I want to read you uh, this news story because this is relevant. Uh, by the way, you can text the word data to 33777. I may need to uh, throw this in here. This is what caused Governor Kemp to... Uh, decide to go shelter in place now. Scientists offered more evidence Wednesday that the coronavirus is spread by seemingly healthy people who show no clear symptoms, and the federal government issued new guidance warning that anyone exposed to the disease can be considered a carrier. A study by researchers in Singapore became the latest to estimate that somewhere around 10% of new infections may be sparked by people who carry the virus but have not yet suffered its flu-like symptoms. In response to that study and others, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention changed how it defined the risk of infection for Americans. The agency's new guidance targeted people who have no symptoms but were exposed to others with known or suspected infections. It essentially says that anyone may be a carrier, whether that person has symptoms or not. Uh, This change occurred yesterday. And in response to the change occurring yesterday, the governor of the state of Georgia changed his mind. The newest research was published online by the CDC. It focused on 243 cases of coronavirus reported in Singapore from mid-January through mid-March, including 157 infections among people who've not traveled recently. Now, everybody on social media saying, well, I knew this all along. This had not been confirmed by the CDC. Do you want the governor of your state, whether you live in Georgia or elsewhere, do you want the governor of your state basing decisions about the economic life and health of its citizens on random people on the Internet or official guidance from the Centers for Disease Control? You you, you take your pick. The CDC didn't change its guidance until yesterday. And as soon as the CDC changed its guidance, the governor decided to change his guidance for the state. Um, it, it seems like that was a very responsive thing for him to do, and yet he's he's uh, being attacked by people for saying that he should have done it sooner because everyone always knew about the asymptomatic people. But no, actually, um, the CDC had not changed its guidance until yesterday. So it's 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 really remarkable for people attacking the governor for following CDC guidance and having the CDC guidance baked into his models that the governor relied on. And when the CDC changes the guidance for the models and the models change, the governor changes his mind. People are like, oh, you should have done this sooner because I read some dude on the Internet who said he knew all along this was the case. If you follow people on the Internet, on the Internet for three months, they've been telling you that uh, this is no big deal and we need to get on with our lives. The number of people who reach out to me on a daily basis and offer some orthodox, uh, unorthodox theory and they say, I realize it goes against the herd, but maybe we need to go against the herd and rethink this. I'm all in favor of thinking things differently. I actually am. The problem is that uh, the, the, the global consensus right now is actually based on a lot of data. And the people who are proposing the alternative theories who are gaining traction in some quarters of the Internet are fairly fringy people. There are some credible people, but most of them fairly fringy people. And that, I think, has a lot to do with the impact here. Uh, you got to be careful who you're listening to. Not not every expert is actually an expert. Uh, and just because you stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night does not actually mean that your credible 
to to offer opinions to the global political leadership on how to handle a pandemic that no one's ever experienced before. Things got to change, but maybe not yet. We'll talk about that when we come back. Hello, my people. I hope you're doing well. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I will probably spend a little more time on this tomorrow. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm debating whether or not I need to do another mini podcast sermon. My, my hesitation on that, I, I, I did. If you subscribe to the, the newsletter that I send out, uh, you can text uh, data to 33777. When you go to the Substack website, um, it will encourage you to subscribe. And, and I hope you will. You can do so at no charge. The people who do subscribe who pay actually get more than those who, who just do the freebie subscription. Um, but I'm, I'm hesitant to do a lot of the, you know, I, I do occasionally get asked to preach and I actually like it more. I've had to put seminary on hold, I'm afraid. And I hate doing that. Um, I, I was in at reform theological seminary and moved up to the, uh, PhD program at Southeastern Baptist theological I need to move back to RTS, but I, I don't have time to be in a classroom right now. I, frankly, I don't have time for seminary right now. I'm doing five hours a day in addition to all the other stuff I'm doing, and I miss it. It's good for my mental well-being to do that. I, I long for the day where I have one radio show, and in doing that one radio show, have time to go back to seminary. Uh, maybe one day I will get there. I hope soon I will get there, uh, back to just three hours a day instead of five to six. I did six hours of radio the other day. Uh, but no, and I love radio. Don't get me wrong, but but I, I miss seminary. The reason I went to seminary, I've said before, I kept getting asked to preach on Sundays because because I, I do talk about uh, faith issues a lot. I do a Good Friday show, which you will hear next week. Uh, we will we will not be talking a lot about the virus next Friday. We'll be talking about Good Friday. But um, I went to seminary because I was getting asked to preach, and then I went to a reform seminary, and the little churches that were asking me to preach suddenly didn't like the fact I was in a reform seminary. I, I will tell you very frankly, there is one church in Georgia in particular. There, several of them did this, but but one, uh, just frankly, uh, had asked me if I would come preach and uh, then literally called me back because I'd said no uh, several times because I hadn't been in seminary. And I mentioned on radio I'd started seminary. And they called and said, now that you're in seminary, do you want to reconsider preaching? And I said, sure. And and I scheduled a date certain that I was going to go be the guest pastor uh, for this church. Uh, perhaps some of you are listening thinking, well, that's really arrogant. You're only in seminary a couple of years. You had not got your degree. I, I, I felt more competent to be able to fill in for pastor, um, not to lead my own church, but to, if nothing else, be an evangelist uh, and, and speak. And then they called back. They got curious and they called back and they asked what seminary I was in. And I said, reform theological and Literally, the the tone of the person on the phone changed, and they said, okay, and they called me back less than 12 hours later to tell me that it turned out the preacher would actually be there. There was a scheduling error. They were very sorry. They would call me back in the future to reschedule. They would still love to have me, and that was three, four years ago, and I've never heard from them since. Uh, but I have preached several times, and I, I've it is way more intimidating to me. I, I can speak to a crowd of 10, 20,000 people, and I'm fine. Um, but putting me behind a pulpit, because you know that the Bible is very, very clear in uh, what happens to you if you are a preacher and lead people astray. And I, I can't just talk off the top of my head. I want to make sure I get it right and, and delve in and prepare sermons. But I, 
released last Sunday by podcast, uh, a sermon I had given. It was actually the very first one I ever did, and it was at uh, in Colorado. And John MacArthur, of all people, was in the crowd, and I just totally flubbed it. I mean, the, the 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 text was fine and all, but I rushed through it. I was so nervous, and I never get nervous in a crowd. But when John MacArthur is sitting right in front of you, uh, and he's also friends with several of your seminary professors, you, you, you feel compelled to uh, get off stage as quickly as possible and let that man up there. So it was bad. So I, I sat down and recorded. If John MacArthur was not there, this is what I would have said. And I pushed that out on Sunday for people who may not have a relationship with the church, but I'm hesitant to do that because there is this this worry, and I think it's a, a substantiated worry, that there are churches that they're not getting in their tithes now because people aren't darkening the door. They can't. And there are also people going off and saying, hey, I, I instead of spending time with my local church, I'm going to go listen to this other preacher if I always wanted to hear. And that ruins your relationship with your church. And you need a, a local relationship with a local church. So I'm hesitant to start doing this a lot. Uh, one, there are vastly better people than me out there. Uh, I, I, I know my talents, and, and as much as I love to preach, uh, would, would far prefer to talk about Jesus than politics these days, and certainly talk about Jesus and the virus. Uh, I, I am not the pastor of a church, and those of you who have a church, uh, you should rely on your pastor of your church instead of going off and dabbling in other places where you're never actually going to have a physical relationship with the podcaster you're listening to. A podcast is not your preacher, and the preacher in the podcast is not your preacher unless that's actually the church you go to. But Every year around Holy Week, I do spend a little more time being a little more, as one critic would say, uh, Jesus-y on the radio. And and there is a person who listens to me on the listens to my other show and gets very, very angry at this time of year that I spend too much time on these sorts of topics. But I, I feel very strongly about it. it. It does define my worldview. I want you guys to, to know me. Uh, all of me, much more so than just just my thoughts on politics. And and I give you, I mean, I talk about cooking, I talk about religion, I talk about all of it. And I do want to say one thing, and I want to spend more time with it tomorrow than today, but Sunday is Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is the day uh, that Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem on the way to the crucifixion. By the end of the week, you know, given the population we know of at the day, uh, at the time this would have happened around 33 AD, AD 33, the people who were throwing down the palm branches and cheering the entry of Jesus into the city of David, uh, many of them would be the same people yelling to crucify him and free Barabbas by the end of the week. Just given the population of the city and, and the crowds, that, that that very much would be the case. The people turned on him that quickly in that week, and the people who were cheering him on were the ones who attacked him. And, you know, you see this in, in, in the world today. You see how quickly people will turn on a dime. Uh, take it, it, not to not to be too partisan here, but take this Kelly Loeffler situation. That uh, It turns out now we know the Wall Street Journal is reporting that she and her husband actually had no say in the stock purchases and sales. They wound up losing money. Uh, and yes, they did buy into a company that involved COVID-19 testing or some such, uh, but it was the company did it after reading headlines in USA Today, the Wall Street Journal, and elsewhere that she and her husband had nothing to do with the purchases and sales, and they wound up losing money. 
And there were people who were willing to give her the benefit of the doubt until they read the first story that made it sound like she had had profited. And they immediately were like, uh, nope, never going to vote for her. I don't care what she says. I, I don't care anymore. How quickly and fickle people are. You you can see that with, with the scripture. And this is not to compare her to Jesus. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying how quickly people turn on a dime. And they, their emotions get the better of them, and, and they don't think rashly about things, and, and people get swept into this. But here's the point I'm getting to, believe it or not. We are in uncharted territory in this country and around the world. Uh, no one has seen a global pandemic since the Spanish flu in 1918, which, interestingly enough, a number of historians are pointing out actually came from China, uh, Chinese railroad workers who came over to the United States and, and spread the virus. Uh, and... Um, it's called the Spanish flu because Spain was where the, the first mass uh, really outbreak and death toll mounted. Uh, but it, it, that also came from China. And then there was the Hong Kong flu of the 1958 that set off a global pandemic, which was just the flu. So it didn't kill as many people as, as this virus kills. But it, this isn't really something any of us in our lifetime have had to pay attention to. And a lot of people are nervous, a lot of people are fretful, and a lot of people see signs of the end times and so much stuff. There's a 6.5 earthquake in Idaho, the biggest earthquake in Idaho in 50 years happened the other day, uh, tornadoes and volcanoes and earthquakes and tsunami. And clearly, I mean, people look at this, say, is this birth pangs of the end times and stuff like that? I don't know. I mean, my, my theory is that since, since, uh, Christ descended into heaven, we've been in the end times and it's taken us 2000 years and eventually we're going to get there. And if it is, it is, there's nothing you can do about it. You can't control it. There's no reason to fret over stuff you cannot control. Uh, take control of the things you can. And frankly, that's one reason people are stockpiling toilet paper. They feel like they can be in control of their lives by going out and buying these necessities and making sure they have enough of them uh, so they don't have to venture out of their house. And they're taking precautions. And I get it. I think it's a little dumb to be stockpiling stuff right now. You you are depriving other people of needed resources and doing so. But I get it. I, I do get it. But the point of all of this is on Sunday, it's Palm Sunday. Jesus entered the city and went to his crucifixion. And that day could not have happened but for a plan of the Almighty, the Father allowing the Son to be tortured, beaten, crucified, killed. Uh, all things are in God's hand. There's N.T. Wright has a thing in Time magazine uh, that basically there there are no Christian lessons right now. The, the, what, what can Christians... Uh, convey to the world right now, and, and it's, it's kind of a hopeless essay. There's nothing there. Uh, it, it, it ignores the fact that God's in charge of all things, the good and the bad. Your theology needs to be prepared for lines in Amos that God brings disasters. Uh, it, all disasters come from God. He, allow, he may not himself spark them, uh, but he certainly allows them to happen. God holds back the waters and releases the waters. He holds back the bad things and he allows the bad things to to, to spread. And you can say, well, he's to blame. Uh, not really. He's not the one spreading the global pandemic, but is he certainly allowing it? He certainly is. And the point is to glorify him and all things work for the good of those who are calling to, to his purposes. Jesus could not have entered Palm Sunday, Jerusalem, but for his mission being completed. And every single person on this planet, whether you believe that, that, that Jesus is Lord or God is real, you're an atheist, whatever, uh, there's a purpose for you on the planet. And you will be A-OK -okay and hunky-dory uh, as you fulfill this purpose. 
God's got a plan for all of us. And there are things you can control and there are things you cannot control. And there is no reason to get worked up over the things that you cannot control. And it has taken me a long time in my life to learn these lessons that there's no reason to be angry, upset, annoyed, whatever with, with stuff. I there's I have no control over it. And all of us as human beings want to act out and exert control in ways that, that, that we think are useful to us or things that can calm us or things that can help us. All of us want that. And I get that everybody wants that. I want that too. I want to be in control of my life. But there are things I can't be in control of. I, I for example, I cannot, I, I want the show to grow. And I, I'm annoyed right now um, because this virus is spreading in Georgia. There are hot spots of the state of Georgia. And I'm doing a radio show focused on Georgia three hours a day. And there are areas of the state where I actually think, you know, it would be beneficial to the people in this area if I was on the radio there. And I realize that sounds arrogant. That's not my point. It is they're getting a national radio program that has nothing to do with their lives, nothing to do with their state, nothing to keep them informed. And I here I am doing the show, giving it away for free, no less. I, I don't charge local radio stations for this. Not only do I not charge them for this, uh, they get 17 minutes of local airtime and they don't have to file paperwork every week. With Like with most big syndicated radio shows, you got to file an affidavit every week that you ran all their commercials. I couldn't care less if you file an affidavit. I don't want you to file an affidavit. I just want to be useful to you and provide the show. And, and there's frustration there that I think it would be beneficial to people in these parts of the state where they have someone on the radio because so many of these these stations don't have local news teams anymore. Everything is syndicated. Uh, here comes a show completely free of charge. If you can run Rush Limbaugh show, you can run my show because uh, you've got the equipment. I'm on the same satellite and uh, nope, can't do it. Or, or no, we got a commitment or, or no, I, I'll think about it or, or they don't know. And I got to remind myself, I can't control this at all. God's got a purpose for me. And to the extent that I can control parts of my life and my show and my career, well, then control them. But there are vast parts of all of our lives that we cannot control. And what we can do is we can trust in a higher power uh, that he has our best interests at heart, even when tragedy befalls us. And when you say it's not fair and, and, and be mad at God, well, you know, tragedy befell the second person of the Trinity as well in a pretty brutal way. Uh, life was never meant to be fair. And these are disconcerting times, and none of us in living memory have ever experienced anything like this. I, I did get in trouble yesterday for pointing out for all the people who don't want vaccinations on the planet, guess what the world would look like without vaccines? This one that you're in right now, stuck in your house. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, God's got a plan. God's got a plan. And he had a plan for the second person in the Trinity who on Palm Sunday uh, walked into a city on the way to his death. And that death could not have happened any time sooner than that. Uh, he could not have been killed any time sooner than that. It would not have happened any time sooner than that because it was all part of the grand scheme of things and all part of a larger plan. And same with your life. Same with your life. Uh, there is a purpose and a role for you in life. And I, if you haven't found that purpose and role yet, one day you will. One day, everyone eventually does figure out, this is why I'm here. And it takes some people a lot longer than others. And a lot, it's frankly, a lot of people run from it and, and don't want to acknowledge it and don't want to say it. But there's a plan. There's a reason. 
there's a purpose for you, for this virus, for everything happening in the world today. And all you can do is exert control over the parts of your life you can exert control over. And there's no reason to get angry or upset or discombobulated about those parts of your life and this world that you cannot control because much of it you cannot control. And the sooner you come to terms with the fact that there are lots of things you have no say over and cannot control, the better off you will be. And I, I do believe that there are so many people who gravitate towards conspiracy because they want to find ways to explain why they can't control or, or explain ways things happen that they don't believe should happen. And so their belief is that there must be some malevolent force out there, some, some conspiracy that is pulling the strings as opposed to just there are things you're not supposed to understand. You know, when you spend an eternity in heaven uh, before the, the very real God who created all things, there will still be things you will never know. You could sit there and ask him a question every minute for eternity and still not get all of your questions answered. There are some things you'll just never know. And there are some things you just can't control. And as you start going to shelter in place tomorrow and you can't leave your house for two weeks and you get anxious and frustrated and angry and sad and depressed on your way to acceptance, You'll get to acceptance a lot quicker if you just understand God's got a plan. You don't see all of that plan. You're part of it. But right now, part of that plan involves you just got to stay home and find ways to connect to friends and family in ways you've never had to do before because none of us have been in this before. But it will be okay. Do you want your most bizarre story of the day? This one genuinely is just a, a deeply bizarre story. An engineer deliberately ran a train off the tracks at high speed near the port of Los Angeles in an attempt to crash into the USNS Mercy Hospital ship, prosecutors say. The Pacific Harbor Line train derailed Tuesday, running through the end of the track and crashing through barriers, finally coming to rest about 250 yards from the docked naval ship. Federal prosecutors allege train engineer Eduardo Marino, 44, of San Pedro, intended to hit the ship, saying he thought it was suspicious and did not believe the ship is what they say it's for. The train crashed into a concrete barrier at the end of the track, smashed through a steel barrier and a chain-link fence, slid through one parking lot and then a second lot filled with gravel and hit a second chain-link fence. It came to rest after passing under a ramp leading to the Saint Vince, or to the Vincent Thomas Bridge. The train remained in that position Wednesday. No one was injured, but the train leaked fuel and required a hazmat response. Authorities say Marino admitted to crashing the train intentionally, but said he did not plan it out in advance. It is believed he acted alone. He allegedly made statements to a California Highway Patrol officer that included, you only get this chance once. The whole world is watching. I had to. People don't know what's going on here. Now they will. Officers said video from inside the train's cab showed Marino holding a lighted flare during the incident. He's been charged with one count of train wrecking, according to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, 20 years in federal prison is is the typical sentence for this. The Navy hospital ship was brought in to help non-coronavirus patients to ease the burden of local hospitals. 
The ship has a thousand beds with 800 active duty doctors, nurses, and medical staff on board. It's expected to stay in Los Angeles until September or until it is no longer needed. Uh, this is a guy who read some conspiracy theories and became convinced that something nefarious is going on with this hospital ship. Uh, so many people are spending time at home now surfing the internet for random conspiracy theories, and a lot of gullible people are believing the conspiracy theories, including this guy, who is now going to go to jail for trying to destroy a ship that is there to help the people of California. Absolutely. We live in the strangest of times, folks. We really live in the strangest of times. I only hope the internet experience gets better for us so when Jesus does come back, we actually will all be able to see it without garbled picture quality on Facebook.